How's everybody doing today? Good. Being in a conference space like this, it, it reminds me of my old academic days where I would present papers, and so I might fall into my old ways and start giving an academic presentation. If I do, someone just wad up the bulletin and throw it at me. And I'll, get right, I'll get right back on track. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, like Lucas said, you know, I have such fond memories of uh, being involved at the early stages of uh, what's going on now and so forth, and just lots of great memories. And, and that's great to see God working in this church, and the church is growing, and it's just a real thrill to, to be here to witness that. So it's really great. Um, also discovered something else today. Whenever you have a hair like a vagabond, it's very difficult to get this microphone on. <laughs> and so I'm going to take note of that for future uh, situations. Anyway, uh, today we are going to uh, be looking at 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, which was the elder reading of, but that's also going to be our text today. And we're going to try to unpack the meaning of that text uh, as best we can in such a short amount of time. And and uh, do our best to do that and to think through what the implications are, uh, to think through what does that mean for us. Uh, we're going to try to do all of those things, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that with, uh, with some uh, effectiveness. So let me just start off by, you know, kind of setting the stage a little bit and, you know, uh, giving a couple of illustrations to help get our minds sort of calibrated toward uh, the, the meaning of the text. Uh, let me start off by just pointing out something sort of obvious uh, I think it's part of the human nature, part of our human condition to just to want guarantees in life that maybe that's the reason why advertisers and companies always offer, you know, guarantees and so on and so forth, because it's just something that appeals to us. We want guarantees. If we go and get the new iPhone, whatever it is, 10, blah, 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 <laughs> just ask my daughter, she'll tell you uh, what the latest one is. Anyway, when we get one of those, we, we want to know that it's going to work, right? And we want to know that if it doesn't, someone at Apple is going to fix it, right? Uh, th those are the kinds of, uh, you know, in inclinations we have as humans. Now, that's sort of a superficial example, but let me give you uh, another example that's more in the realm of uh, Christian spirituality, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that by sort of just taking a little slice from history and thinking through a story from history and hopefully illustrating that same point, but a little bit in a little bit more of a serious way. Uh, Sometime, or someone in history, rather, confronted the, uh, the great evangelist John Wesley, we all know who that is, of course, uh, with this question of assurance uh, that I was just mentioning. John Wesley was born in England in 1703. He was born into a religious family. But as we know, this in no way makes anyone Christian. We, we, we know that. Uh, certainly didn't make John Wesley Christian either. Wesley went on even to become a missionary. And uh, he went to the American, we know that, but this precedes his, the, the effective work that he had in the States. He went as a missionary to the American colony of Georgia, and he returned. And upon returning, he felt as though his labors were an utter failure. It would not be till about 1737 when Wesley was truly converted, according to his own uh, thinking and memory of it. He attended a Christian lecture and was confronted with the truth of salvation by grace through faith. Wesley says that his heart was strangely warm. Anybody who's a student of church history will recognize that famous phrase, his heart was strangely warmed. It's a very interesting thing that he said. And basically what Wesley was getting at, or what we perceive actually happened, and that was how he sort of recognized it, 
was that Wesley finally came to the place where he genuinely committed his heart and life to Christ. He had come to a place where he trusted in Christ alone, Christ alone, to take away his sins. On one occasion before Wesley's conversion, someone challenged him by asking, uh, quote, Are you sure, Mr. Wesley, of your salvation? And he answered, Jesus Christ died for the whole world? Yes, we all believe that. But are you sure that you are saved? And Wesley answered that he was sure that Christ had made a way for him to be saved through the cross. Another perfectly relevant observation. Yet the man replied, but are you sure, Wesley, that you are saved? Uh, you see, without assurance, Wesley was not really fit and was not productive in his Christian labors. We are all, in a way, disqualified for service without a measure of assurance with regard to our salvation. So this morning, our text, I would argue, reveals to us some important information about our salvation where it comes from, how do we have assurance regarding it, and some other things as well that we'll cover as we go through it. So this morning, what I want us to do, I'm going to throw out a phrase that will kind of be a thematic phrase that will sort of weave its way into uh, the rest of uh, the sermon, and it will kind of hopefully thematically tie it together. So I'm just going to throw it out now, and I'll remind you of it later. And hopefully, if I've done my job, we will, you know, stuck to that to some regard, in some regard. Okay, anyway, here's the phrase. Live your life in such a way as to reflect your Christian confession. Live your life in such a way as to reflect your Christian confession. So we'll think about that, let it calibrate our minds, and we'll turn it in and we'll read, uh, again, Second Peter or chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll just read through it, and then we'll take little chunks and try to unpack those chunks as we go along the way. But here we go, just... To read it again. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your calling, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a great passage. So I just want to point out a couple of quick things. Well, first of all, let me just quickly set up the, uh, this book a little bit. Second Peter was written by Peter. Yes, you guys are so good. Yeah. 
I don't even know what I'm doing up here. You guys have it already. Yes, of course. That was a, that was a softball, underhanded pitch right there. Second Peter, driven by the Apostle Peter. We all remember Peter. Of course, he was one of the 12 disciples in Christ's earthly ministry. Peter, remember, uh, he cut off the ear of the soldier in the misguided attempt to, pre- to protect Jesus from his arrest. He was a bit of a zealous fellow. And of course, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, Peter became an apostle, a very important man indeed, a church leader. Obviously, we're reading his words some 2,000 years later. This letter was written, many historians believe, just prior to Emperor Nero's death uh, in AD 68. He was a very brutal emperor indeed. And so that would probably, uh, if if we accept that timeline, which I generally do, would place this letter as having been written somewhere around A.D. 67. Pretty early. Pretty early. Uh, Generally, Peter in his letter seems to be addressing the problem of false teachers. He gets into that later in the book, which uh, we won't get into because we're not there yet, and I'm not going to uh, make you sit here while we preach all the way through 2 Peter. Uh, I'm not not so mean as that, but that's a big theme of the book. And so, for now, though, let's look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of this uh, first chapter, and we'll kind of think through that a little bit. Okay? I'll just quickly read it again, just so it's fresh on our mind. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith, equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May peace, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, so basically what's happening there is that is a pretty standard uh, greeting for a first century letter, right? There's, uh, you know, that's uh, essentially what we would expect in a letter like that. And so very often, uh, if you sit down to start to study a new book, you might sort of uh, run past that a little bit because it's basically just Peter saying, hey guys, how's it going? We're going to talk about some cool stuff, right? How are you doing? Uh, and that is what it is, but it's, it's a bit more, there's a bit more going on under the hood there with this greeting than just simply him saying hi and uh, let's get started. There's a little bit more going on. Uh, it's a very... Uh, sort of Christian, uh, uh, let's say, greeting. There's a lot of theological content sort of packed in there. It just goes by you so fast. But let me just point out a couple things. First, Peter, who is an apostle, as I mentioned, obviously a very important figure in the first century church, very important indeed. He's so humble as to call himself a slave or a servant. Uh, Both of those uh, renderings would be uh, good renderings from the Greek word douloi, a slave or a servant. It's a very humble way to think of himself. In other words... He was just an everyday, hardworking servant of Christ. He wasn't presenting himself as some potentate or anything such as this, but rather he was a humble servant of the Lord. So that's something that we ought not to miss that could just pass by us very quickly. Second, verse 1 makes the claim for the deity of Jesus. That's no small thing. And in fact, you could make the argument this is perhaps one of the most explicit uh, proclamations of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. There are many others to be sure, but this is a very explicit one. What does he say? He says, Jesus, he refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. And the word God there, if I'm not mistaken, is theos, which is the word we would use for God with a capital G, right? Uh, whenever I have, I, I teach a few classes uh, over at Laterno, and whenever we're talking about theology and so forth, I always make the distinction. I'll draw or I'll write on the board uh, God, and I'll make a capital G, and I'll write on the board and make a small g. And every time we're talking, and I'll remind them, now, are we talking about this kind of God or this kind of God? 
And that kind of helps you go, oh, yeah, right, we need a capital G sort of God here. And so that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying Jesus is our God and Savior. What a massive theological claim. The reason why I bring it up, I mean, obviously we, we feel connected to that important truth as Christians, but the reason I bring it up is because some people will argue that this idea that Jesus is God is something that happened much later. It was legend that sort of applied uh, to uh, to the person of Christ, but that's not really what the New Testament teaches. Well, that's just the person deluding himself, it seems to me, uh, when you encounter this this greeting in Second Peter, because there's a very explicit claim there for the deity of Christ. Also, too, just another quick observation. Uh, apparently, uh, we have equal standing as it regards our faith. Um, uh, we're not sort of sub second-class Christians compared to the apostles or to any other uh, person, your pastor, anybody. Apparently we have equal standing in the faith, and that is because, it would seem, according to verse 2, because of the righteousness of Christ, that that is the way that we have this equal standing. That is a picture of justification. Just right past you there in the, hey, hey guys, how you doing? Just right on past, uh, embedded right there in the text. Pretty neat. And then finally, we also learn that grace and peace is something that we obtain through our knowledge of God and Jesus. That's something to take note of, it seems to me. So anyway, pretty pretty impressive greeting there, I would argue. So having looked at that and uh, given that a, a bit of attention, let's look at the next two verses and think through what Peter is trying to say as he gets in, more properly speaking, into the theme of this first part of Second Peter. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Actually, read a little bit further, but let's comment just on verses three through four. We'll we'll pick up on verse five and look at some others in a moment. But we'll think just about three and four. Verse three tells the readers that all things needed to live a life of a loyal Christian, obedient life. All of that, all the tools that we need in order to do that, comes from God through a knowledge of Him, Him being Jesus. That that all comes through a knowledge of Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? What, what, what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Is, is there only one sort of knowledge to be had about any given thing? No, and even in our English language, there's different senses to that word. The knowledge spoken of here uh, in the Greek is not just a kind of head knowledge, right? But rather it's a knowledge that implies intimacy. If someone came up and asked me, um, oh, let's say, uh, do you know who Katy Perry is? I'd say, yeah, yeah, I know her. She's got some uh, decent uh, uh, pop songs, right? That's not the, that's not the kind of knowledge that uh, that Peter's talking about here. If someone came up to me and said, uh, you know April, right? You mean April Malden? Yeah, she's my wife. <laughs> I know her, right? That's a whole different kind of knowledge, right? They both both words are English words, but they have a different sense and a meaning, and so too uh, does uh, Greek have different. Uh, they actually have different words for it. Uh, uh, so that makes it a little bit more detailed. And the word knowledge that's used in the Greek there is the kind of knowledge that implies intimacy. It has a relational component sort of embedded in the word. 
And that's what uh, Peter's talking about. So the, the idea that we, uh, that we have everything that we need to live a life uh, that is obedient to Christ and to make God happy, uh, to, to please God with our lives, everything that we need to do that comes from a relational, intimate knowledge of Jesus. Because there are many people in the world, I don't think this will surprise you, that have a head knowledge of Jesus, but this in no way implies that they live godly lives or are Christians at all. Uh, some of these people are preachers. Some of these people are religion professors. I've met some of those. And others are uh, folks who just, you know, maybe just uh, folks out on the street that you just have to have a cup of coffee with. They know who Jesus is. They, they can have a conversation. Maybe they grew up in church. But they don't have the sort of intimate relational knowledge that's spoken of here in verse 3. The great and precious promises are those things regarding our eternal salvation. That's what Peter's talking about here when he mentions these, uh, these great, uh, these precious great promises. What's being spoken of here are things regarding our eternal salvation. And notice how Peter tells his readers that they may participate in the divine nature. That's interesting. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's a reference to our salvation. That's what Paul, Peter is talking about. I would say Paul. You know, Paul wrote like almost the whole of the epistles in the New Testament. So uh, if you just say Paul wrote it, you're almost always right. But not in this case. <laughs> not in this case. It's Peter. So, so uh, participating in the divine nature is a reference to salvation. That is to say the Holy Spirit living within us. Participating in the divine nature is not, by the way, a reference to becoming little gods. Like uh, if anyone's had any experience with the Word of Faith movement, you will hear that word thrown out a lot, uh, or at least you used to. It certainly was written about quite a lot, this idea that we are little gods. Or perhaps uh, uh, you may have encountered uh, some theological discussions with some of your Mormon friends and the belief that in the afterlife, we can become gods. That's not what's in view here in the text. These teachings that I just mentioned are heretical and anti-Christian and must be rejected. Yeah. Rather, Peter is telling his readers that God's promises to his children are such that we possess <clears throat> eternal life and that, they're, and that they are, as a result, we are, as a result, able to escape the rotting influences of this world around us. The, the moral decay that just seems to be everywhere, we're able to escape the repercussions of that as a result of being able to participate in this divine nature, having the Holy Spirit working in our lives and possessing this beautiful and wonderful and mysterious gift called eternal life. So, let's look at verses 5 through 7. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to uh, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Okay? So how is our salvation confirmed then? Or how do we validate the salvation that we as Christians already have received? Peter gives his readers a clue in answering that question, I believe, here in these verses. As a Christian, we cannot simply kick back and say, just bring on the grace and the blessings, Lord, just bring it on. 
That's not really what's presented here in this text, and the Bible really doesn't make a, a very convincing... <laughs> there's not a lot of comfort for somebody who has that approach uh, toward Christianity. That's just really not what you get when you read your Bible. Peter tells us that such wonderful gifts as these imply, on our part, commitment and dedication. We are to receive God's gift of salvation, yes, and then to cooperate with God in several ways. Now, what I believe is uh, being discussed here is a stage or an aspect of our salvation called sanctification. A lot of times we think of salvation as this one sort of holistic thing, and of course that is a perfectly appropriate way to think about it. It is. There is a sense in which it is this one thing, right? But it's also appropriate to think of it in, in terms of different aspects. There are different aspects. Some people might use the word stages, but I'm a little less comfortable with that because it has a temporal, yeah. something temporal about it that I don't like. And if I don't like it, then, you know, it must not be good. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I prefer to use the word aspect. And uh, there are obviously the, the previous stages to our salvation, like justification, where uh, uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, or, or regeneration, where our heart is transformed. Uh, evangelicals popularly started calling that being born again. Of course, the the Bible made that one up. Evangelicals didn't make it up, but they started throwing that word around. It became a very popular phrase. Billy Graham you know, used to use that phrase quite a lot. I remember when I was a kid uh, hearing that. Have you been born again? They just talking about regeneration, where our heart, all of these things, God uh, performed this miracle in our heart called salvation, and, and they took place sometime in the past, right? There's a point on the timeline, even if we don't know what that point is, and a lot of times we don't. And I, I think people make a mistake when they try to always sort of pinpoint that time. I just think that's unimportant. Uh, but anyway, some people do, and that's great. Uh, but anyway, nevertheless, whether we know it or not, it does exist sometime in the past. However, there is, a, there is an aspect to our salvation called sanctification, which is not just a point in history. It's also now, and it's also later on, right? And ongoing, right? That's called sanctification. And, um, and that is the one part of our salvation where we can and should cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That we don't change our own hearts. We can't do that. That's, you know, I mean, I, we can try, but I, I, I fear that we will fail miserably. Um, but sanctification, because God has done these other wonderful and glorious things in our life, we now have the ability to cooperate with him. And not only can we do it, we must do it. And Peter is telling us here several ways in which we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And, and in doing so, he's helping to answer the question, how then can our faith be validated? First, he says we are to strive to add to our faith goodness or virtue, uh, as our uh, rendering of uh, the text uh, puts it. Goodness or virtue. This word in Greek uh, meant heroic deeds. So it's a kind of, uh, it speaks of uh, being courageous uh, almost. Uh, in this context, Peter's explaining that we should strive to live virtuous, or let's say courageous Christian lives. We should be courageous Christians. And that's a very good admonition for us to hear today. But this, the next thing that we're supposed to strive for is a really helpful admonition to go along with the first one, namely knowledge. 
Have you ever met a courageous Christian that didn't know anything? And uh, they were a little reckless. Uh, so we want to get to the second bit pretty quick. Okay, We want to be courageous, but we also want to add to that knowledge. Now, unlike the first uh, use of knowledge that we saw Peter talking about, which was uh, implied intimacy and relationship, this is more of a head knowledge that's uh, the word being used here. This is a knowledge where we are supposed to study and uh, it's referring to truthful insight, uh, which is the result of diligent study. And in, in our context here, particularly as it pertains to God's word and the doctrines that arise from studying God's word and so on. So very important uh, to this knowledge, we are to add self-control. Uh, Peter may be using a sports metaphor here, it would seem, uh, with this word self-control. Athletes would deny themselves in order to be in prime condition for their sport. Uh, something that I know very little about because I'm not a very good uh, athlete, uh, but I, I, I understand that's what they do. I, I've, heard, I've heard it said. Uh, Peter desires in his readers a self-control that is of a moral and spiritual nature. Obviously, it's a metaphorical use if, if indeed he is using a sports metaphor. Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of a symbolic use of the word because he has in view here uh, self-control as it pertains to morality and, and spiritual matters and so on. Uh, we must deny ourselves, Jesus says in the Gospels. Our self-control must lead us then to perseverance or steadfastness, as the ESV translates it. Steadfastness or perseverance. Steadfastness is endurance to the end from the Christian perspective. A Christian must surely be described as persevering. That ought to be something that when a, when a Christian has, has lived his life and all is said and done, uh, hopefully, surely, he can be described or characterized as someone who was persevering. There's nothing more uh, difficult, it would seem to me, than a pastor having to uh, preach the uh, funeral of someone who perhaps could not have been described in this way. It uh, yeah. takes on a slightly different tone, and it's, uh, yes. it's a difficult thing to do. So certainly, Christians ought to be able to be uh, described are characterized as persevering, hanging in there to the end. Now, that's not to say that Christians won't struggle along the way, because they certainly will, and it's not to say that they won't stumble, but in the end, they can surely be described as having persevered. Um, and also, too, when we look in Revelation over and over again, if you read through Revelation, uh, it, it, what's that phrase that repeats over and over again? To him who overcomes... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne to him who overcomes and so on and so on. This is a repeated phrase over and over again. So certainly this is important for the Christian life. True Christians endure to the end. Perseverance then leads to, according to Peter, godliness. Remember from before, a life of obedience or loyalty to God's standard is what godliness is. So that leads to godliness. And to this, Peter would have us add brotherly kindness. What is that? I and mean, we can imagine what it is. You know, we speak English, though this wasn't written in English, but that's a good rendering, it seems to me. Uh, brotherly kindness. It is the warm affection that we have for one another, and in particular, what's in view with this word is, and in the context of the use of this word, is uh, the kind of uh, love and kindness and, and, and warm affection that is shared among brothers and sisters in the faith. Okay, That's what's in view here. Paul to Peter is, <laughs> there I go again, Peter is expressly uh, focusing here on us loving one another as Christian brothers and sisters. That's what's in view 
when he uses that term brotherly kindness, which helps to explain why he would then just follow up with the word love. Because sometimes if you just read that, you go, uh, Peter's being a little redundant there. But he's actually not being redundant because what he means when he says uh, to add love to our brotherly kindness, he's saying now share that love out to the world around us. We are supposed to be loving and, and we are supposed to care for people that are outside of the household of faith, so to speak. And that's what is in view there for Peter when he references that we should add love to our brotherly kindness. Christ is our example of love, of course, and he loved us enough to tell us the truth with his life, with his words. He loved us enough to sacrifice himself for the sins of sinners. Amen. I'm one of those, by the way, so yes. I'm really glad that he did that. Because yes. I am a sinner. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So essentially here, Peter teaches uh, his readers that true faith is not void of these attributes that we just read about, the spiritual fruit. It's not void of these things. The one who boasts of his salvation in Christ, but is void of this sort of spiritual fruit, I fear, is deceiving himself or herself. Verse 9 tells us that such a person suffers from a kind of spiritual absent-mindedness, if I can use a phrase like that. The state of his soul is uncertain. Such a person does not know whether he is secure or if he is unsecure in his salvation. Such a person will also undoubtedly live in fear and doubt. And I, I think we've all, perhaps we've been that person or we know people like that. But Peter does not want his readers to live this way. Rather, he wants them to make their uh, calling and election sure. That's a, uh, that's a phrase that uh, if you... Uh, if you grew up in church and you memorize scriptures a lot and you memorize this one, you probably would have memorized it with that word. Uh, make your calling and election sure. But of course, the ESV here uh, refers to it as confirm your calling and election. That's what Peter wants for his readers. He wants them to be sure about their calling and their election. In other words, Peter desires that we know or have assurance that we are really saved or rescued from our sins, reconciled to God, as it were. A true Christian is one that pursues with the Holy Spirit's help, of course, these qualities or virtues that Peter was just describing. If one is a true Christian, then he or she will pursue these Christian attributes and they will bear fruit. And as a result, will have assurance of their salvation. They can make sure they're calling an election. They can confirm it. Now, not only... Will such persons have assurance of their salvation here on earth? But they will, in fact, as we see right here, which is a, a, just a really beautiful text, not only will they have assurance here on earth, but they will, in fact, receive a, quote, rich and welcome, uh, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's obviously what we desire, to be with our Lord for eternity. Okay, 
So whenever we go through and try to figure out what it is uh, that the original writer was getting at and what the context, uh, literary and uh, otherwise historical was, and we try to come to some sort of uh, meaning, understanding of the text, I think it's always important then for us to pause and to ask the question, what then is the universal, or let's call it a theological theme, what then is the theological theme that, that seems to emerge as a result of uh, taking on and understanding a passage of Scripture? Sometimes there's more than one. But, uh, but I would argue there's always at least one in there that we can consider and contemplate. And, and the one that I'm going to look at that I believe is embedded in this passage is the doctrine of assurance. You may have already guessed that. I've mentioned it several times. <laughs> what are we to believe about our salvation? Can we know whether we are truly reconciled to God? Can we really know, have surety about our election and our calling? Is this possible? It seems that the Bible would answer with a yes. Peter seems to provide us with one important piece or tool, as it were, in answering uh, the, that question that I bring up. Uh, let me th uh, speak about this uh, slightly uh, more broadly, and then I'll narrow it into the text that we had today and what it tells us about that. The doctrine of assurance, more broadly speaking, I believe, can be uh, looked at in two different ways. First, there is the objective sense in which we find assurance of our salvation, the objective sense. Uh, objective, the word objective could be defined as not influenced by personal feelings or interpretations or, or prejudice, but based on facts, unbiased. Okay? Uh, so generally the way I think about that is uh, you know, something objectively true would be, let's just pick something that's uncontroversial like gravity. right? Um, that's true and it really doesn't matter what I think about it. I could get up on top of the roof here and jump off and as I was falling down, I could say, I don't believe in gravity, but when I got to the bottom, uh, it would be evident that gravity is, in fact, objectively true, regardless of how I feel about it. Okay? Uh, so that, that's an objective, uh, that, that's a, a use of the word objective, uh, perhaps you see what I'm looking at. And I would argue that there is a way to uh, find assurance uh, that's uh, more objective in nature. Okay? So what does that mean? It means that... Uh, we can find assurance of our salvation by looking at the cross of Christ, gazing upon the finished work of Christ on the behalf of sinners. Christ made sure the salvation for anyone who will come. Gaze upon it. Consider it. This is a means by which we can find assurance of our salvation to gaze and to ponder and to glory in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And of course, uh, if anyone is sitting here today and they've never done this, I encourage you to do it. Gaze upon the cross. Consider it. Consider what Christ has done for sinners and reach out to Christ. He paid the penalty for your sins through his work on Calvary. Reach out to him today, I implore you. But this is not the only way. And by the way, and by the way before I move on, I don't want to move on too quick. Let me just read you two quick passages to uh, just give you an example of uh, what I believe would be uh, objective means. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider it. Christ did this for you. Uh, we can find assurance in this way. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It would seem to me that these are more objective means by which we can find assurance. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here in our passage today, Peter shows the way that we can experience assurance in, I would argue, a more subjective sense. Okay, 
What is subjective? Can, that word can be defined as existing in the mind, belonging to the thinking subject, rather than to the object of thought. In other words, once we gaze upon the finished work of the cross, we then believe, and through the help of the Holy Spirit, we begin to seek after the Christian virtues, which ultimately bear fruits. They become, little by little, more and more, never complete in this life, but ongoing, they become a reality, little by little, in our life. Why do I say that this is subjective? Because we're experiencing it, right? We are experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We perceive it internally. We, we perceive the work of the Holy Spirit uh, when God is uh, helping us go through this process called sanctification. We perceive it in our mind and in our heart, and we engage it, and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So this is of a more subjective nature. And it seems to me that these two means are very helpful as we begin to think, how can we have assurance of our salvation? We gaze upon the finished work of the cross, and we embrace the work internally that Christ and the Holy Spirit is doing within us. Yeah. And I think that we always do this as, as Christians. Um, we tend to sort of move toward theological extremities. We, we, we emphasize something over against uh, the other thing. And, and, and really, at the end of the day, well, always what we're trying to do is find that biblical balance. You know, how, how exactly does the Bible describe it? We, we take all of it into consideration. I would argue... Uh, that uh, in the 20th century evangelicals, and and when I say, well, I won't get into that. In the 20th century, <laughs> I almost went, see, we're in a conference room. I almost went there. But I, I saw someone like, start to wad up their bulletin. I said, all right, all right, all right. You got it, you got it. So in the 20th century, I would argue that evangelicals have, this is a stereotype, so please forgive me, but largely emphasize the objective sense in which we find assurance, right? Yes. You, you, you've been to sermons before where the preacher said, nail the stake in the ground. You know, it has the date and a little flag, you know, waving in the wind. And uh, that's a very objective description of how it is we find uh, assurance of our salvation. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's wrong, but it is. it can be taken too far. And uh, if we focus on that entirely, then we could have Christians walking around saying, well, when I was in youth camp, I went up and said the sinner's prayer, and bada-bing, bada-boom, here we are, you know? And maybe that person lives like the devil, you know, and they don't care anything about the Christian virtues. Well, that, that would obviously be an extreme. That's not what the Bible intends uh, when, when, when we are encouraged to, uh, to look objectively, objectively on the finished work of Christ. I would also argue... Does that mean my time is up? <laughs> uh, some of you are like, I don't know, but yes. <laughs> um, I would argue that in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Puritans, again, a stereotype, but uh, the Puritans largely emphasized the subjective sense yes. in which we find uh, assurance for our salvation, to the neglect almost at times of the objective sense. Uh, many Puritan writers would... Uh, they would, and, and, and pastors and ministers and theologians would talk, they were very concerned that everything be very detailed and the protocol be very detailed in the way it was presented. You had to check certain boxes. You had to present before you could be a member of the church. You had to present a very convincing case for your conversion. And that was a subjective case that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. They were looking for certain signs, subjective signs that would have happened. And so on. Very, very subjective indeed. And there were people, uh, many accounts of people who lived their whole lives as devoted Christians, never knowing for sure if they were reconciled to God. Yeah. That's a shame. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
However, there is a sense in which we, uh, we look subjectively to uh, find assurance. It's, that, it's all of those things, really, it, it, that comes together. And that, that's really what we're looking for. Is we're looking to take in the Bible as a whole. And Peter is presenting to us that subjective aspect of how we find assurance. And we take his message today. And we combine it with the rest of God's revealed word. And this is how we come to an understanding of assurance. Um, that's how we make our calling and election sure, according to the words. That's the way Peter worded it, and I think that's a perfectly fine way to say it. So we'll, we'll say it in that way. So then, the, the third question I always ask whenever I'm presenting a message, or just studying the Bible. You don't have to be a preacher to ask these three questions. They're important questions. The first one is what we did to begin, where we try to ask what it is, does the, what, did, what's the, what does the text mean? Like when Peter wrote it and the original readers read it, what did he mean to communicate? That's your first question. If you ever go to a Bible study and the first question they ask if they read a text is, well, what does this mean to you? I'm always like, I don't care what it means to you. <laughs> of course, I'm a little bit of a grouch, and so you have to forgive me. Uh, I know what they mean. When, when, when a teacher asks that question, they're really saying, how ought you to apply this to your life? That's a perfectly valid question. I'm just being grouchy. Uh, but before we can answer that question, we have to answer the first question, which is what did the t what did Peter mean when he wrote this? Because there's only ever one meaning to that, right? Like he didn't mean three things or ten things or a hundred things. He meant the thing that he meant, right? And so we have to answer that question first, and we've tried to do that. Obviously, we didn't have very long to do it, but we tried tried to do that. The second question is what what's the theological meaning of it? We we try to do that, and then here now we can get to the question that you get in Bible studies all the time. But what, what does this mean to you? Or rather, uh, how ought we to apply this? Right? That, that's really the better way to word it, it seems to me. So how ought we to apply it? Well, if you remember in the introduction, I, I threw out that phrase, live your life in such a way as to reflect your Christian confession. Uh, but maybe we can answer that question more specifically. That's obviously pretty broad. I could just say, all right, let us pray. But, uh, but perhaps maybe just a moment or two on some specifics. How can we be specific in living our Christian, uh, letting our life reflect the Christian confession that we have? Uh, so let me let me start by saying two things that are going to blow your mind. This is, you've never thought of this. All right, are you ready for this? Read your Bible and pray regularly. You've never thought of that, have you? Right. The only reason I say that is because we all strive to do that more and more, and with more effectiveness. I I strive to do that. And, and I don't do it like I should, but I strive to do it, and you should too. So let me implore you this morning. Read your Bible and pray regularly. How can we ever expect to be transformed into godly and loyal servants of Christ, which is what Peter's asking us to do, right? He's asking us to do that so that we might make our calling and election sure. How can we ever hope to do that if we do not uh, take seriously the study and the reading of God's word? I would encourage you to start a systematic approach to reading God's Word. I would even say, uh, read whole books of the Bible, right? Take big chunks of the Bible, thematic chunks. Tackle big thematic chunks of the Bible. Don't just be satisfied to just read the verse of the day. I mean, do that. That's fine. But do more than that. I would argue that you will uh, benefit from doing, from, from tackling bigger thematic chunks of the Bible to seriously study and think through God's Word. Uh, if you read in that way. Read through, uh, as I say, books of the Bible. After reading, I would argue that you should pray about your readings. What a novel idea. Pray about your readings. Seek godly advice on the text meaning. 
Did you guys know that some parts of the Bible are hard to understand? Have you ever noticed that? You know, we like to act like, oh yeah, everything in the Bible is super easy. It is not. There are some really hard passages to understand. Guess what? That's okay. We're supposed to love God with our mind too, aren't we? You know, that's, you know, that's part of the deal, is it not? So that's all right. When you do that, pray and ask God to help you understand. Also, call up your pastor and have him uh, meet you for lunch. Hang out with your mature Christian brothers and sisters. Have conversations, deep conversations about these things. Engage uh, the Holy Spirit in the sanctification that you are going through. Be deliberate about that. Ask God, pray and ask God to help you be conformed to his image. Ask him to, for help. Right? We all struggle. I mean, we all struggle with these things that Peter's telling us. We need help. Ask God for help. He wants to help you in this way. Seek his help. Something else we can do to help foster these virtues in our life and, as a result, make our calling and election sure, that is to say, fine assurance, is to engage in Christian community. It's important. In other words, God has ordained the church, I would argue, to equip the saints to do the work of the Lord. Yes. God's chosen to do it in this way. Uh, it's like my dad used to say. My dad is full of one-liners. Uh, my dad, who is a devout churchman, by yes. the way. Yes. A devout, and many of you in the room know that. My dad told me one time, he said, church is great. The only problem is there's people there. <laughs> He's right. It's not perfect. But God has chosen to use the community of Christians, imperfect as they may be, to help uh, develop this image of Christ in us. So don't overlook that. Uh, engage that as well. It's here at, at, in, in the church community that we find encouragement and challenge to be conforming to the image of Christ and thus find assurance of our salvation. Once we believe in Christ and are bearing fruit, thus having assurance of our salvation, we can then begin to be effective Christians. More effective Christians, to be sure. So I would say, be an effective Christian. Be a Christian who cares about his friends. Be a a Christian who looks for ways and opportunities to care for others. Live your Christian life. Live your life in such a way as to reflect your Christian confession. That is how I will leave you guys today as we contemplate this passage from Peter. I believe uh, our brother here is going to lead us in another song or two as we think through this message today. And in fact, while you're getting ready and everybody's coming up, perhaps I'll just pray. Is that all right? Is that all right, guys? God, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you haven't left us to simply grope in the dark, uh, trying to figure out what is true and what is not true. But God, you've given us your word. You've given us the community of believers to help us uh, figure these things out. Uh, so we pray now that you help us to do it. Help us to understand your word. Help us to engage your word. Help us to grow in the faith that you would add these progressively, these virtues to our lives more and more, and that as a result, we can be confident that we can confirm our calling and election. We lift these things up and we pray them in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.